Hi, this is Jesse, and welcome to Red Cloaks Radio. Today, we're going to be learning much more about the National Association of Social Workers. And joining me as co-host today are Karen from Boston Red Cloaks and Laura from Boston Red Cloaks. Today, we have three wonderful guests from the National Association of Social Workers. We have Brianna Silva, Cassidy Trebilsi, and Jamie Klaps. Welcome. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Just to get started, big picture, people may not know what the National Association of Social Workers is and how you operate in Massachusetts. We're the Massachusetts chapter of the National Association of Social Workers. Uh, we represent social workers in Massachusetts, social workers in every setting, including healthcare, where they may intersect with this issue. Um, and we have more than 6,000 members in our membership base, but there are many, many more social workers in the state. And so we do our best to represent uh, both social workers themselves and the clients and communities they may serve across the Commonwealth. So we work really at the heart of the intersection between social work and social justice. We know that social workers are in a wide range of settings from like public schools to hospitals, private practices, towns, municipalities, so many places have social workers doing very challenging work. Where are most people situated in Massachusetts? What type of setting? So the, more than 50% of social workers work in health and healthcare. Um, a large percentage of our membership works in private practice. So they're providing direct clinical care, mental health counseling uh, to clients. Um, but as you pointed out, they are literally in every possible setting they could be. Um, and so we do our best to represent the needs of social workers in all pockets. When you talk about advocacy, um, your website is really wonderful. It's actually a great resource for people who are not social workers. You are paying attention to a lot of different legislative efforts that would help people thrive. How is it that you made the transition from practicing with people to advocacy? It's a really great question. So social workers always working at the intersection of both direct intervention delivery while also recognizing that if we're gonna change the things that are presenting amongst clients or the communities that social workers are working with, you also have to move upstream and do that big picture advocacy. So social workers, this is Im embedded in the curriculum and that social workers are learning whether you choose to end up going into direct clinical practice, you are learning about the policy changes and the systems changes that are needed to support the clients and communities that you ultimately will be working with. So it's always yes and, it's always both and. What are some of the legislative priorities you've had this past session, which we know is an extended session. Everything. Um, so <laughs> any any issue that intersects with social justice, economic justice, or racial justice, we are probably there and, a, and supportive of the bill. Um, some of our priorities this session include the Healthy Youth, Youth Act, mandating sex ed curriculums that are comprehensive, medically accurate, and LGBTQ inclusive in public schools where sex ed is being taught. Uh, we are working heavily on police reform in Massachusetts. Many social workers intersect with the criminal legal system. So we do a lot of work in that space. So including expungement and raising the age of juvenile jurisdiction. Um, we do a lot of advocacy for social workers in clinical practice. So we're doing, um, we're doing a lot of work on telehealth right now and making sure social workers have access to telehealth as well as their clients and that they're being paid fairly for the telehealth that they're providing. Cassidy, Brianna, what other issues do you think are important to mention that we've been working on together? Yeah, I would say highlighting the Healthy Youth Act, especially in the conversation of reproductive justice would be important. Um, a lot of high, high school students are facing issues um, seeking abortion care, especially in Massachusetts. A CDC study in 2017 that surveyed high school students found that 30% were sexually active in the past three months and 46% didn't use a condom last time they had sex. 
So ensuring that they have access to inclusive, medically accurate, age-appropriate care will really help um, reduce unintended pregnancy and abortion rates. I just want to echo what Cassidy said. Right now, as a current student, I can say a lot of school, you know, a lot of social workers that are involved in school have been discussing the Roe Act, and it is a popular conversation among our discussion posts and in, you know, student conversations and student forums. Well, that's good, because I think a lot of information that we've gotten has been that not enough people know about the Roe Act, and it's just not, it, we needed to gain momentum, right? That's part of it. But I want to ask you guys a little bit more about the Healthy Youth Act. I'm myself an educator and have taught comprehensive sexuality ed for years. And it, it, it's oh, I've taught in a bunch of different settings and a, a, lots of different schools where, as you know, it's, it's taught at some schools and not at some schools. And I just wonder what your take is on why this has taken so long. It seems like a, a no-brainer. Yeah, it absolutely is a no-brainer. We've been pushing for this for this bill for 10 years. I've, it's followed me from organization to organization that I've worked from, which is sad and unfortunate. I, I, it's unclear what the barrier is. It's so clear that reproductive, reproductive justice and freedom is a priority in Massachusetts, yet we're not equipping young people with the skills and the tools that they need to make that a reality. So there is this huge disconnect and why we work on both the Roe Act and the Healthy Youth Act at the same time, because there is this nice connection and dovetail. We thought with the, with the Me Too movement that there would be a lot of consensus and movement building around the need for consent, but that it didn't happen. And so we're still trying to figure out the right narrative to push this forward because it is, so, it is such a priority. And it goes beyond sex ed, right? A huge part of the Healthy Youth Act is teaching about consent and healthy relationships. And that's not about sex necessarily. That's something, you, a skill set you can apply to every aspect of your life. And so we're preventing uh, young people from having the skills that they need to just be successful and healthy humans. Yeah, I wonder who the lobbyists are against it sometimes. Is it educators who just don't want to teach it? Because I know in a lot of schools, they'll put the gym teacher in charge of teaching health or the science teacher, and they don't really want to do that. And I wonder if there's underground noise being made that way. Yeah, it, it's definitely possible. I know when I was in school, sex ed was the phys ed teacher, as you pointed out, and we colored in uh, anatomically correct uh, coloring pages. And that was the extent of the conversation. We, they didn't even um, use the banana in the condom diagram. Oh that show and tell. So there's a huge disconnect happening. Can you identify some of the resistance in terms of themes uh, that you encounter with respect to healthy youth? I think the thing I hear the most is that it, people believe it's a conversation that should be happening in the home, but I believe that there's never enough education, right? And we, we should be hearing things from all parts of our lives. And oftentimes parents aren't equipped with the right tools to even have appropriate sex ed conversations that are medically, medically accurate and comprehensive and especially inclusive of LGBTQ needs parents just aren't equipped. And so schools are that medium where that conversation can happen. We know educators are educated um, and we're giving them the tools to actually utilize a curriculum. And we're not telling them which curriculum they have to use. We're just saying, here's a laundry list of curriculums you could use um, that meet these specific requirements. So that, that belief that parents are the ones should be doing it is just really ineffective or outdated 
because we know parents don't have the skills and oftentimes it can be an uncomfortable conversation. And so if I was a parent, I would be relieved. I think that there would be somebody else who I could partner with to have these conversations and that somebody else being the school and the educators there. I've noticed um, a lot of hypocrisy from the resistance in that they believe that parents should be the ones to decide what and when sexuality is, uh, sexual education is, is taught, uh, whether or not their kids should uh, be vaccinated, whether or not they should get the flu, uh, whether or not their kids should wear helmets when they're playing rough sports. And I find at the same time, well, it, it, what they, their cry is, no, that's parental rights. And they don't want government telling them what to do. Yet those are the same people who feel that they can tell women when they should have a baby. How do we fight that? How do we, I, I know we can't change the minds of some of these people who are so entrenched in that hypocrisy. How do we go forth into the field? For the, the Healthy Youth Act at peace and vaccination, all of these like really essential public health interventions, almost all of them, there's a grace period where parents can review the materials and can, can consent or can opt out rather than opting in. For those particular issues is really helpful, having the period where parents can review and can opt out, but having the default being that students are automatically opted, opted in to those things. So I think that is, that is really critical part of both the Healthy Youth Act and any of the vaccination uh, work that we've been doing. For the Roe Act, we know that young people are fully capable of making decisions, right? They are choosing to get into the job market. Uh, they're choosing to date. They're choosing to do, choosing where they go in their cars, right? We give them so many freedoms and privileges and trust them to make those decisions, uh, especially in the higher teen years. And so where is that there's a huge disconnect between all of those freedoms and privileges that we trust them to do and, and to, to monitor for themselves, yet we don't trust them to do those things when it comes to taking care of their bodies and doing what they need to do, which may be obtaining an abortion. So we have to figure out how we can uh, share that message and make that connection really clear. We're already trusting, trusting them to do these things. Why can't we also trust them? To, to make that decision for themselves. Combining that with a, the message that abortions are extremely safe and not risky, I, I think that's really important too, that that message has to be combined somehow. Well, in pregnancy itself, pregnancy is risky. Pregnancy, remaining pregnant has an impact at, at any age, whether you're advanced in age or whether you're young. And a first pregnancy is often quite challenging for a person to go through. It's it's a but really physical teen, thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and if you're a teen and you're also trying to get your homework done, you have a lot of um, obligations that you have to meet where you don't have any discretion. You can't just decide to miss school. If you miss too much school, you're truant. So it seems very difficult. What kinds of teen experiences have you seen that social workers end up getting involved in I can't necessarily speak about specific cases or incidences, but generally speaking, social workers are advocates. They are trusted confidants for their clients and those that they're working with in the community. And so even if abortion doesn't agree with the social worker's personal beliefs or values, it is their ethical duty. Social workers are bound by a code of ethics. So it is their ethical duty and responsibility to protect a client's right to self-determination. 
And so that extends to a client's ability to make decisions about their own body. So if social workers are act, acting ethically, then they are, uh, and a client that they are working with had, wants to obtain abortion, then they have the ethical responsibility to help the client do that and help them mitigate any barriers they may be facing uh, in that process. One of the things that's so challenging is sometimes the people who are opposing teens having access to abortion are themselves actually in very unhealthy relationships with teens. So it isn't all the time a a young person can get pregnant because they voluntarily chose to have sex. However, there are teens who don't have the freedom to decide where they want to live and end up living with people who abuse them or and it could be a relative, it can be a foster parent, it can just be a place if they're kind of couch surfing, if they're homeless, a place that they've seen, you know, they've sought shelter. So in those situations, uh, do teens ever turn to social workers for help when they can't get consent from a parent to have an abortion? Do they ever turn to social workers to deal with judicial bypass in Massachusetts? And what's that like? Absolutely. There are so many social workers that work at the intersection of the criminal legal system. But in this particular case, I would imagine there are social workers in all realms, right? But a social worker working in a school system perhaps may be the person that a, that a an adolescent might go to, right? They're already embedded within their high school. And so it might be a trusted confidant where they can go to and use that social worker to help them navigate these barriers and figure out how to move forward and navigate the judicial bypass process, which is so unnecessary and so cumbersome. And from somebody who has never been involved with the criminal legal system, right, how overwhelming that process is and how lucky that person is that they have a social worker in their court that can help them navigate that barrier. It also illuminates the need to have more social workers in schools. We are far, we have way too few for the number of pupils that are enrolled in Massachusetts public schools. But at least that's a start, right? If there's a social worker in the district or embedded in the building itself, then there is somebody there that students can utilize. And hopefully students know that, that that's what social workers are there for. And do social workers, are they obliged to keep the information confidential? Because for teens who are listening, they are looking for a trusted adult, but they really need to know who can they tell who will really not tell anybody else. Social workers, just like any other healthcare professional, are bound by HIPAA. They have to keep information uh, confidential and want to do everything in their power to help clients maintain their privacy um, while helping them uh, navigate any barriers they may be facing. In social work, you help give voice to people's emotions and feelings. And we live in a country where there's so many feelings and experiences we don't talk about. Abortion, sex, grief and loss, trauma. These are all things we don't really talk about. I know in terms of the public school system that understanding childhood trauma is something that People are working really hard to help school committee officials and superintendents and educators understand who don't have a social work background. So that experience of trauma can last a lifetime and influence someone's ability to thrive in school. If you could kind of wave a magic wand and have legislators hear from your experience and your expertise, what do they really need to know when they're sitting there and they're about to vote on a policy, whether it's Throw Act or Healthy Youth? What, what do you want them to really understand? That social workers ultimately want to protect and enhance human well-being. And so any issue that NASW is advocating for is directly trying to do that. And so the reason we're at the table for so many critical social justice issues, reproductive justice issues, is because social workers fundamentally are bound, not only bound to a code of ethics to do those things, it is part of the DNA of social work to advocate for social justice and social change. And so if we're saying that this is important to social workers, it is, and social workers represent the needs of so many people across the state, 
And so when you're hearing from NASW, know that we are representing social workers as a whole and social justice. And so when we're telling you that the Row Act is something that needs to get taken care of, we have the backing of social workers, thousands of social workers across the state who are standing with us and us saying that. I just wanted to take us back a little bit to um, what you were saying before about the Me Too movement and how, you know, along with, you know, a lot of different um, issues, they come, they sort of explode, and then they fizzle out a little bit. And I wondered how how you saw that sort of combining and, and um, how that could be brought to light again in order to highlight some of these other issues. We know there's a lot of national conversation about the unfortunate passing of Justice Ginsburg and also we're in the midst of a hearing for the Supreme Court, right? And so there is another issue, some, there is another moment like the Me Too movement where we should be capitalizing on public momentum to get a legislative action done. And so we, we missed the boat with the Me Too movement. We didn't mobilize around the Healthy Youth Act effectively enough, but we're not gonna miss this opportunity with the Roe Act, right? Like now is the time to get it done. Uh, Brianna, I don't know if you wanna add to that at all because I, Brianna is a social student at Salem State University and, and just recently wrote a paper about this issue connecting kind of what's happening in the state to uh, to what the national movement has been. I think it's really important that we, you know, normalize abortion. You know, everyone has this kind of misconception, but we could all be put in a place where we feel like we have no other option but to get an abortion. You know, a lot of people who have abortions in their third trimester it's due to a fatal fetus diagnosis. A lot of women don't want to be put in their in that position, but they have no choice, or they personally feel they have no choice but to get an abortion. And I think it is really great. I don't know if you guys saw that uh, Michigan Senator Gary Peters came out and shared his experience with abortion. That just helps normalize the situation. Depending when you grew up in this call, you may have either been aware in the 1970s of illegal abortions and that was the only choice or your family had them or your friends and it's you know flash forward almost 50 years later there's a whole generation or two that have grown up feeling like of course it's legal and here we are it's very depressing to see to see the impact over the past two weeks especially of an administration that is intent on slamming through a nomination on purpose really targeted towards women's and pregnant people's autonomy. That's the goal. Very difficult. We would love your take. You mentioned reproductive justice, and we hear people talk about reproductive rights, reproductive justice, reproductive autonomy, reproductive freedom. What do you bring to those different terms? I think if folks want to use reproductive uh, rights, that's absolutely fine. We choose to use reproductive justice at NASW and, and in social work. We get too caught up, I think, sometimes in the language and what's right or wrong, but we're all trying to fight for the same thing. And that truly is justice, right? We want to remove barriers and create equity for folks. The folks who traditionally fought for what is what we now refer to as reproductive rights, right? It happened in the past. It was traditionally led by white women. Um, and now we want to make sure that what we're fighting for is inclusive of all people, um, regardless of your race, ethnicity, or any other, any other intersectional identity that you may have or hold. And so by advocating for reproductive justice, we're making sure that movements going forward are inclusive and they're truly fighting for the freedom and liberation of all people who may need whatever it is that you're advocating for. Do you see that there's still work to do towards racial equity? in the work that you do in social work? Oh yeah, that is a, an understatement for sure. We are 
trying really hard to center racial justice in everything that we're doing at NASW within social work advocacy. Um, our, in, we're setting our next legislative agenda right now and making screening every single bill that we're choosing to be on our legislative agenda to make sure that it truly advances racial justice and is not uh, creating undue harm for any particular community, particularly communities of color. And so that is something that we haven't done a good enough job of doing in social work and at NASW and is something we're very conscious of and mindful of and wanna center it in our work moving forward. A lot of social workers seem to be women. And so for a woman of color as a social worker, it seems like there's a double challenge put in place if she's the person who's trying to speak with authority about work that has to take place in a work setting, a medical setting, a school setting. It's a lot for her to overcome to be recognized as the voice of authority when as a social worker, she's the one in the room who does have the training. Is there is that something that you're working to address or how can you support someone in that spot? Social workers, not only are they traditionally women, they're traditionally white women, right? And so there are all kinds of barriers of getting into the field and the profession. And then, as you pointed out, Jesse, of kind of holding that authority once you're in the space. And so we do our best to equip social workers with continuing education trainings. That's something that uh, we do a lot of at NASW in addition to our advocacy work. So we're trying to educate social workers, particularly white social workers, right, of how they can be better allies and advocates for their colleagues while also trying to be a resource for social workers of color and helping them navigate or mitigate any barriers that they're facing in their own individual practices or in the settings that they are in, because oftentimes there's just one social worker, right, in a particular setting, in a school, um, intersecting with the criminal legal system, perhaps in a police department, right? So there are usually only one social worker and it can be really hard to have that authority and voice, as you pointed out. And so we do our best to be thinking about that in our advocacy work, while also uh, being a resource for folks who are navigating barriers. We have an ethics hotline, we have a legal hotline. Um, so we try to be as resourceful to people as we can. What kinds of opportunities would people have if they wanna know more about the work that you're doing? So generally speaking, we post a lot of information on our social media channels. Uh, we have a legislative alert network where, where social workers and, and allies can sign up to get direct emails from us with advocacy opportunities. So about the ROAC, Healthy Youth Act, so many other things that we're fighting for. And so that's one easy way folks can get plugged in. And for social workers across the state, we have several different committees that they can get plugged into to be effective advocates. So we have uh, a political action for candidate election committee. So NASW has a PAC and we endorse candidates who embody social work values or are social workers themselves. So one of the questions we ask candidates during that process is if they, if they support reproductive justice, but specifically access, having access to abortion. Um, another member or social work opportunity uh, is our legislative advocacy committee. So all of the bills on our legislative agenda, particularly our priority bills uh, are developed by this committee. And so it's a committee of social workers from all areas of practice who come together to help NASW determine what we should be fighting for in the session ahead. Uh, so that process is ongoing now for the next session. So those are kind of two uh, committees that social workers can get plugged into uh, to help us move our advocacy priorities along. Um, but outside of that, we have an event coming up um, on Tuesday, November 10th from 6 to 8 p.m specifically for, by social workers, for social workers advocating for the Roe Act. Uh, so Cassidy, who's here with us today, has been leading the organizing on that uh, in collaboration with NARO. Um, so it'll be featuring a panel of social workers talking about the importance of getting the Roe Act done this session.
question. Um, and one of the social workers who'll be joining us is Tammy Gavea. She has both her MSW and MPH. So she's just an, an incredible ally. And it's so awesome to have social workers in the legislature representing their communities, but also the values of social work. Fantastic. We really appreciate your coming today. This Sunday, the 25th, uh, the Red Cloaks will be at the State House as part of a nationwide effort to protest the nomination and here in Massachusetts to make sure people see the connection between what's happening in the national front and what we could be doing right here in Massachusetts by passing the Roe Act, the Healthy Youth Act, and we will be definitely asking to follow up with you in January on whatever comes up in the next session. Hopefully these will be passed by then. Thank, Thank you, you so much. You. Thank you for the work that you do. It's so great. Thanks for spending time with us today.